The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, today we have the privilege. Today we're going to have the Lord's Table or Communion, the Lord's Supper. We didn't have it last week uh, because we had a full agenda, but we also have five Sundays in the month of June. And so we're going to have communion today, and then we'll have it on the fifth Sunday as well. So uh, to prepare our hearts, I I wanted to do a devotional out of Psalm 1, just a, a beautiful psalm. Talk about it. We'll hit some highlights, and then we'll go into communion in about t- uh, 20 minutes or so. But I wanted to prepare our hearts, prepare our thoughts with God's Word. Uh, just a couple of comments introductory about the book of Psalms. There's so much you can say about the Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible. It's where the Psalms are. They're written in Hebrew. Several different authors or prophets of God, from Solomon to Agur to David to about 34 psalms that are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. We do know that the Spirit of God superintended or was overseeing God's human prophets who wrote them. So it's all the Word of God. And there's 150 of these blessed psalms. Uh, They are beautiful from a human point of view in terms of their artistry. Many of them are poems or poetry or lyrics to a song. So they they even have a different structure and appearance, especially when you read them in the original Hebrew. It's more definitive. You can just see the beauty and artistry much more clearly by the, the skill of the poets that wrote these psalms. We're looking at Psalm 1 today. Psalm 1 is the introduction, actually, to the whole book of Psalms. It has been said, and I don't know if this is true, but I've heard those who would know better than I who study the psalms and say that Christians collectively that they're aware of spend more time in the book of psalms than any other book of the bible that may be true another comment has been made is that the older you are and the older you get the more time you spend in the book of psalms as a christian i don't know if that's true universally it's been true of me there's a reason for that i think a lot of when you do hospital visitation to older senior saints in those hospitals or wherever, care places, many times, read me a psalm. Read me. That's the number one request, at least I know that I get. And I've heard people echo that as well. And why is that? Why do, as you get older, maybe gravitate towards the psalms? I think one of the main reasons is that whoever's writing any particular psalm is a realist about life. Many of these psalms are from the heart of the poet or the psalmist or the inspired prophet. And many times they're speaking from the heart. And many times... Their heart is under duress. And it's it's just a realistic portrait about what life is living in this cursed and fallen world. And they're having these very transparent and honest conversations with God. Whether it takes the form of praise to God. A petition to God. Pleading with God asking for help. A prayer And some of these are more instruction-oriented in the Psalms. But many times we just see the heart and the emotion in the midst of a trial in the life of a saint who's crying out to God. And so that really resonates with us many times when we're in the midst of trial. And these Psalms speak to our heart. God, because it is the living Word of God, it ministers to us. It provides comfort, strengthens our faith. It's always encouraging when you're in the midst of a trial or 
persecution or depressed or you're just down in the dumps, it's always encouraging to know and talk to somebody who's also there in the dumps with you because you're not alone on a human level. That's why they're so encouraging. What's doubly more encouraging is that God is there with you no matter what's going on in your life. That's God's promise in the Old Testament from Yahweh himself. I will never leave you or forsake you. And then Jesus echoed those words in the New Testament as a promise to his church. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the wonderful promise we have. So that's just some of the beauty and the blessing that comes with reading these psalms. So I wanted to read Psalm 1 to encourage our hearts. Um, Many of us are in transition. We just talked about folks in transition with graduation and even promotion and uh, just for you to be aware, the McManus family is in transition. I brought it up a little bit. I got a picture. Let's see if it shows up today. So there I am. Uh, you can't, it's not the greatest picture in the world, but in the background, that was on Friday. I took a selfie of the house in Cupertino that we've been renting the last 13 years. Now, some of you are aware of it and we're contacting either me or my wife, Debbie, all week with prayers and asking how it's going and getting encouraging texts and really appreciate that. And even today, many people following up with comments and so did you have to sleep in the phone booth or are you okay and how did it go? And so we appreciate uh, the care and the concern. Uh, but I also thought it would be, be important because you're G- Grace Bible Fellowship, the church here. And even some of you members don't realize that we started this church, actually God did, 13 years ago with about 19 adults with a huge step of faith where I, I left First Baptist Church of Los Altos as an associate pastor with 18 other saints who believe God was moving in a certain direction to start a new church in the Mountain View, Sunnyville area. And we stepped out in faith, uh, my wife and I, and we had four little kids at the time and a dog. And we didn't have a big denomination supporting us financially. It was just pretty much 19 people saying we believe this is what God is doing. And we didn't have a facility we had to rent if we could even find find a facility to go to, to do church and when we did rent it was at two in the afternoon which is an odd time but then i was the only full-time staff pastor guy and i needed a place to live in. so god provided this house that we start started renting 13 years ago uh, raise your hand if you've been to the mcmanus house over there in cupertino so yeah that's wow that's almost over a, that's a super majority of you um so when Debbie and I had been praying and some church folks at that time were helping us to find a house to rent to do this church plant from scratch, uh, God brought us to this house, providentially in Cupertino. Big house, could handle a family, but most impressive when you walk in the front door to the right is this big old living room. And so it's like, first thing me and my wife were thinking, oh, Bible study, church events. And then you go to the other side of the house and, oh, Thanksgiving dinners, hospitality, baptism interviews, membership interviews, dinners for guests at church. And God allowed us to use this church uh, for 13 years for ministry. And it was vitally important in the beginning because we didn't have a church facility. So that was kind of our satellite extension of GBF for 13 years. So we, we thank God for that. We wanted to share that with you, especially those of you who are members now, maybe weren't here in the beginning just to know our beginnings and how it all started. So that really was a kind of a bedrock of how Grace Bible Fellowship started. So we praise God for it. It was a rental, and then we uh, 
uh, had to move out because the older decided, or I mean, the owner decided it was time to sell the house. So appreciate your prayers. We thank God for the amazing ministry that he, he did through that house and all the people that walked through the doors, all the blessings that came with it. They also let us keep our dog when we moved there. That was huge. Macy, who stayed with us for 15 years, she was part of the family. So that was a big deal. Um, so we thank God for the memory and continue to keep us in prayer as now we are in transition. Um, and we're going to be helping out our, my in-laws, uh, Debbie's parents for the summer a little bit, uh, but we'll be here at least on Sundays regularly and, uh, throughout the week. We'll just keep you posted on our, our housing status. So thank you because so many of you asked, I just, it'd be helpful for you to just have a little bit of an update and to know what's going on. So the next three months, we don't know. Uh, exactly where we'll be from week to week, but we have cell phones. So <laughs> therein lies our stability and God's hand of guiding. But we are at peace. Why? Because we know the God of peace, which takes us to Psalm 1. Let's go there and look at it. Psalm 1, on the back of your bulletin, you have just the title of the sermon of the day and the way of the righteous. The way, that's what this psalm is about, the way of the righteous. So I'll read through the psalm, highlight a couple of things. I really want to camp out on the first two verses before communion. This psalm is about three main characters. There's the Lord. He's the main character. Yahweh is his name in verse 2. In your English Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Have you ever noticed that about God's name? Sometimes as Lord, it's got all capital letters. And every once in a while, particularly in the New Testament, the word Lord isn't in all capital letters. But in the Old Testament, sometimes or many times the word Lord is in all capital letters. Whenever it's in all capital letters, especially in your Old Testament, that means it's using the four Hebrew word or the, the Hebrew word Yahweh and those four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, which is God's personal name. God has generic names, Elohim. That's Genesis chapter 1. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the true God is called Elohim. False gods are also called Elohim at times. Human beings are called Elohim at times. So it depends on the meaning. But this, this name, Yahweh, is reserved as God's personal name. It's a precious name. It's a name that he revealed to his people whom he saved and made a covenant relationship with with them and made these eternal promises to them like Abraham and to Moses where God revealed himself as the creator of the universe and then revealed his name particularly to Moses that his name was Yahweh I am my name my personal name is Yahweh I am the covenant keeping God I've entered into a covenant with my dear elect people Israel they are my people I am their God my name is Yahweh so that's God's very personal intimate uh, personal name covenant name and it's used twice in the psalm. So that's really the main character. So Yahweh is mentioned in verse 2. Yahweh is mentioned in verse 6. So of the three main characters in this psalm is Yahweh is dominant. He is supreme in all of this. Everything is seen in reference to Yahweh in your relationship to him. Whether you have a personal relationship with him as a believer or whether you don't. Which takes us to the, the two other main characters in this psalm. One is the, the righteous man or the righteous person, the righteous woman. And the other character is the wicked. So you've got the righteous and the wicked. This is typical of the Bible. The Bible categorizes people into two camps. 
You are either righteous or you are wicked. And that's true in this psalm. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You're either saved or you are not saved. You're either born again or you are not born again. You're either a disciple or a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ or you don't know Jesus Christ and do not follow him. There's nothing in between. No, there's no one who is neutral. This is reality. This makes it real simple, too. In the light, in light of the day in which we live, where there's all these categories of people categorized by uh, your economics, categorized by your background, categorized by the color of your skin, categorized by the country you live in, categorized by your ethnicity, categorized by your gender, which is always changing, categorized by your, and on and on, your political views, all these divisions. It's really not from God's point of view. There's only two categories. There's the righteous and the unrighteous. In this psalm, the two categories are the righteous or the blessed one, the blessed man, the blessed woman, the one who knows God, and uh, the wicked, the unrighteous. So today, this this psalm, even though it was written maybe 1,500 years ago, no, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, could be 3,000 years old, it's as relevant as can be because every single one of us falls into this psalm. Really, this is a biography of every single one of us because we can read this psalm and, and decide, oh, I'm I'm the blessed man, I'm the blessed woman, I'm in verse 1. Or it could be, you know what, I, I don't know God, I am not righteous, therefore I am in verse 4, I am the wicked. Or maybe in verse 1, I am the sinner, I am the wicked, I am the scoffer, I am the mocker. Because every single one of us falls into one of those two camps. There's no in between. And all of it is contingent upon whether you know Yahweh personally or not. And in the New Testament times, since the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection, you come to know Yahweh, you come to know the true God only through Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior by believing in his gospel, who he is, the work he did on the cross, his resurrection on behalf of sinners. He's the only way to the Father. So you either know Jesus Christ or you don't. You either know the Father in heaven or, or you don't. And Jesus said he was the only way to the Father. So it's real clear. It's real simple. That's one of the beautiful things many times about these psalms is they are so simple. Just a beautiful simplicity. And that's true regarding the main characters in this psalm. So the reason I wanted to read this psalm, one of the, because I wanted to help prepare our hearts for communion. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've read that passage many times. It's about communion. It's the meaning of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. It's divine revelation from the Apostle Paul that he got directly from Jesus, the risen Jesus Christ. And in there, he explains the mandate for the church to corporately gather for communion on a regular basis. Not only does Paul explain the mandate, he also explains the meaning of what communion is. It's a giving of thanks, a Eucharist, Eucharisto, to give thanks, to thank God for being your Savior if you're a Christian. So he explains the meaning of it. It's symbolic. It's a symbol of a reality that Jesus died for sinners. So it is a memorial. It's a symbol. Taking communion, eating bread doesn't forgive any of your sin. doesn't make you holier. Jesus already died for sin 2,000 years ago. So it's a symbol. It's a memorial. It's a reminder, a visual aid to help us 
to get our eyes back on track in the priorities of life, that I am a sinner saved by grace through the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, by his shed blood, by the life that he has given. Thank you, Lord, that I can participate in that reality as I worship you and give you thanks by participating in communion this day. So that's Paul's intention there, explaining the meaning of communion. Not only that, he actually shows us the procedure of it, and so that's why we use the cup and the bread, because that's what he said to do. Then he also gives a, a warning before you take communion. It's a practical warning. So this is serious. This is sacred. It's all about sin. You need to evaluate yourself before Almighty God. You need to confess your sin to God to get right with him. He says, examine yourself. That's for every Christian. Communion is only for Christians. And if you are a Christian this morning and you're ready to take communion, Paul said and reminded us we need to examine ourselves before we take communion. Because if we take communion flippantly, if we take communion by having hidden sin that we're cultivating and hiding and we don't want to let go of. Or maybe we have sin in our life that we don't even see. That's why Paul says you got to examine yourself first. Like the psalm in the Old Testament where David prayed, God, search me, know me, find out any evil way in me. Even things I'm not even aware of, expose it in me doing this self-examination. So we're going to use this psalm to fulfill the mandate in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine our hearts, examine ourselves before we do communion. Because two times, 1 Corinthians 11 and in 2 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul gives the same command. He says, examine yourself, examine yourself. And this is to Christians. Now, it sounds easy, but, you know, that's really hard to do. To examine yourself, that may be one of the most difficult things in the world to do, is to objectively, honestly, thoroughly examine yourself at the deepest level and for myself. That is very difficult for many different reasons. Why? Because we are biased and prejudiced towards ourselves. I like myself, and I know you like yourself too. That's what Ephesians 5 says. No man hates his own flesh. We're totally self-oriented. So that's one of the reasons why examining yourself is hard. So these command, okay, Paul, examine myself. Well, how do I do it? You can't do it in a vacuum because we won't be successful. Because we are biased towards self. We all have blind spots about ourselves. We are all ignorant about certain things about ourselves. We all lack objectivity in some areas about ourselves. So we need help. With this command, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourself. Well, what help do we have? God, have you provided with help? He has. So that's what the word of God is for. It's like a laser. It's like an x-ray. All in one. It exposes. It's like a mirror, according to the book of James. So to help us this morning examine ourselves honestly and objectively, we're going to look at Psalm 1. Asking the question, okay, I need to examine myself. Am I a righteous man or a wicked man? If I'm righteous, then I can go to the Lord's table knowing that I know Jesus Christ personally. Or maybe I'm not righteous. I'm, maybe I'm deceived, self-deceived, and I'm a sinner. I'm, a, I'm wicked. Then I should refrain from taking communion. That's what Paul said. If you're not a believer, do not take communion if you're not a Christian. Also, if you have unconfessed sin, if you have a conflict with a fellow believer and you're holding on to a grudge and refuse to make it right with him, refrain. If you're, so if you're even a Christian holding on to sin, refrain from communion. That's dangerous. Don't do that to yourself. So there's some good reminders here for us to evaluate ourselves 
We need help. So we've got the word of God to help evaluate ourselves. We've got the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He will help us evaluate ourselves. And the main tool that the spirit of God uses is the word of God, the Bible. So the spirit of God uses the Bible scripture as a searchlight on our souls, trying to notify our conscience. Hey, you messed up here. Hey, pay attention. And then if that doesn't work, uh, God will also give us other people in our lives, particularly other Christians to help give us objectivity. Hey, you're messing up here. Hey, you're off kilter. Here, did you not see this? You do this. This is a bad habit you have. You did this the other day. This is violates scripture. This was sinful. No, I didn't. No, no. Yeah, actually, you did. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, no, you did. So anyway, that's that's human nature. So with God's help, we can examine ourselves and then have the confidence knowing that, yes, Lord, I, I laid all before you and God forgive me of my known sins and even my unknown sins that that was true in the old testament they god actually had sacrifices for known sins that you committed and unknown sins that you are accountable for we're culpable and responsible for sins we commit that we don't even know that we commit so we need god's help so we're going to do that let's go ahead and look at this psalm as we prepare our hearts for communion for those of us who know jesus christ personally the psalmist begins the whole 150 psalms this is kind of the entry gate into the book of psalms i mentioned earlier there were three kinds of psalms there's psalms of petition psalms of praise and then psalms of pedagogy pedagogy meaning psalms of teaching psalms of instruction psalm one is a psalm of teaching is a psalm of instruction and appropriately so because what god is intending here is he's trying to deliberately inform us of things we need to do and be aware of and know before we enter into this glorious book called the book of psalms where god wants us to spend most of our time in worship of almighty god but we can't enter into the book of psalms and enter into the arena of worshiping a holy god with unclean hands and worshiping in a wrong manner in the wrong way you could have legitimate and sincere, sincere intentions and worship the wrong way so Psalm 1 is a, a, a psalm of instruction of basic priorities that we need to have right before we take off our shoes and enter into the holy ground of worshiping God through the rest of these psalms. And so it's a psalm of instruction. So through the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts, let's submit to him as our teacher that he might open up our minds, that we might be sensitive to this glorious supernatural revelation of truth. How blessed is the one or the believer. Or the man, the person, the woman of God, the man of God, the child of God, the teenager who knows God. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a firm, a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I said I was going to focus in probably just on the first one or two. Verses, maybe we'll get to verse 3. But just to give you an overall outline that's real simple, and that just shows you how the psalm flows, if that helps you. Verses 1 and 2 
is the priority of the righteous. The righteous, they have the right priorities, or they, they know they're supposed to, the right priority. So the priority of the righteous, verses 3 and 4, is the stability of the righteous. If you have the right priority in your life, meaning God comes first, his word comes first, God's promises, you will, he will give you stability in life. What a blessing. Priority, stability, and then verses 5 and 6. If you've got the right priorities, and God has blessed you with stability and this is all in the present life. There's a future promise, and that's destiny. So that's point number three is destiny. The priority of the righteous man, the stability of the righteous man, the destiny of the righteous man. Those are all three beautiful things, too. We're focusing in on the way of the righteous man. All of this is taught in context of a contrast throughout. We're not going to talk about the wicked man. But we learn more about the righteous man compared to the wicked man. It's very helpful. Just so you know. Like many psalms, this psalm is beautifully balanced. It is complete. It has harmony. It has a beginning and an end. It has a resolution, which many times is called like an inclusio. An example of that would be the way it begins. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners. One translation says the path of sinners. Literally, it's the way of sinners, the way of. The way of sinners. What's the way? Well, the way speaks of a lifestyle, a path, a direction of life, a walk. In which you live day to day, heading towards goals, a destination, a way. It's a worldview. And pretty much you're on one path or another. There's only two paths in life. There's the path of the way. It's a lifestyle of living of the righteous or a lifestyle of living of the wicked. And from a biblical point of view, the righteous are going this way towards heaven, towards Jesus, towards the Bible, towards obedience. And unbelievers are going this way towards disobedience, away from God, toward the world, in the world, and unbeknownst to many of them, towards Satan, towards destruction. Those are the two paths. Those are the two ways. So verse 1 starts about the emphasis here is there's these two paths, these two ways that we can take. Jesus talked about the two ways. That's it. There's only two. There's the narrow path. There's the wide path. Then in verse 6, it closes with the way. The, end, the very end, uh, verse 6 says, For the Lord, Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous, the path of the righteous, the life of the righteous, the trajectory of the righteous, the destination of the righteous, the lifestyle and worldview of the righteous, of the believer. The Lord knows that. He attends to that. He's involved in that. And also, the Lord knows, Yahweh, the way of the wicked one, the unbeliever. And the Lord knows that the way of the wicked one, the path that he's chosen, the life that he's living, uh, the conclusion that will culminate eventually is eternal death. That's how the psalm ends, perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the contrast. And here this psalm ends in the wicked who perish. By virtue of the way. So there's the inclusio. It begins with a way and ends with a way. One way is eternal life and one way is perishing eternally. 
apart from the presence of God. So let's look at who this righteous man is and see if we are like-minded with the righteous man. That if there's anything that resonates with our soul to testify that we are in fellowship with the righteous one, which is good, which means we know the Lord. Do we have his priorities, the priorities of the righteous man? Because the priorities of this righteous man should be our priorities in this life right now. Because those are the marks of being a true believer. Let's go ahead and look at it. Um, first, he describes the priorities of the righteous man and the blessing that goes with it. How blessed is the one. So there's a blessing that goes along with being a righteous person. There's a blessing that God has promised to impart to us if we know God, if we are faithful, if we are believers, and we walk in obedience. So there are two words in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, for blessed. Uh, one has to do with being being filled with potency for life, like being fruitful and multiply. That's not this word. This word is a different word, uh, and it's talking about it an ethical kind of blessedness in the context of a covenant relationship with God, the creator. And it is monitored by obedience to God. And the byproduct of it is blessing from God. So you will be blessed. There are things that you can do to be blessed by God. Contrary to last week, when we talked about election, that God initiates salvation, God does it. He elects people. He predestines and the emphasis was on God's sovereignty. This is the beautiful compliment. There are things that we do, too, that make a difference in our Christian life. There are, there are things that we do that actually influence other people spiritually. That's all over the psalm. So God's sovereignty does not negate our volition, our responsibility, and the blessings that come with it. So do you want to be a blessed person? Do you want to be blessed by Almighty God? Here's how you do it. Uh, the blessed one, the righteous man, the righteous woman is characterized by two things, things that they that they refrain from, that they don't do and things that they do do. Those are the two priorities. So if you're a Christian today, this should be true of you. There are things that I avoid deliberately, specifically, and there are things that I pursue as a priority in my life. Very simple. Verses one and two. What are they? Well, if you're a righteous person, the first thing you avoid is the following, that the righteous man does not three things that he does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The second one is he doesn't stand in the path of sinners or the way of sinners. And he doesn't seat, uh, sit in the seat of scoffers. So big picture here is a righteous person who wants to be blessed by God does not associate in an ongoing basis with wicked, evil people in terms of having fellowship and communion with them. He doesn't want to be like them. He doesn't want to be pulled into their lifestyle, their worldly thinking and all that goes with it. We're supposed to be salt and light in the world, which means we're supposed to be different than the world. The righteous man is clear to make a difference as he goes around and commiserates and rubs shoulders with unbelievers, not being influenced by them in a negative way. It's a universal truth that you are either influencing somebody or somebody's influencing you at any given time. That's all there is to it. First Corinthians warns us bad company corrupts good morals. And so here is a righteous man. A believer is deliberate about their association with unbelievers. And, and the beauty in this psalm is there is a progression of sin here. This is a great parenting psalm, by the way, if you're a parent. Because you can see, you know, in hindsight, you can say, wait, how did the child that I raised, and parents say this all the time, grow up in the church, in the Christian home, with devotionals, all the Christian hoops they ran through, all the Bible that they learned their whole life, 
and then later on at age 30, 40, they aren't Christians or they abandon the faith. How did that happen? When it looked like they were a Christian at age 5, 7, 17, 27, and then just abandoned it. Well, Psalm 1 explains that because there was a progression and a cycle of sin that was a part of infecting them. I think of probably the most graphic way in my mind to picture this is imagine the ninth grader freshman going over here to Fremont High School the first week of school. They're young. They're innocent. In a Christian home. They've been insulated their whole life. They haven't seen a whole lot. Now they're thrown in this big secular high school here at Fremont High School. And as an eighth grader on the first day of school, they're walking to school, scared as can be, as a ninth grader. And then they see all these high schoolers, and they're just walking by and just staying to themselves. And they're innocent in a lot of ways. And then they come home, and they're comfortable with their family and the people that they know. But over time... As they're going to school, people start talking to them as they're on. They're walking along the way and whispering in their ear. Hey, man, check this out. Hey, look at this. Hey, have you ever seen one of these? You ever smoked one of these? And they're just walking along. At first, they don't want to hear it because there's some guilt. There's some shame. There's some fear. That's the first part of this, that the righteous man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You're on the move, but you're side by side with the wicked one whose counsel is advice, suggestions, persuasion, trying to woo you over. And you're on the move. And you better keep moving. Then three months into your freshman year and all of a sudden that kid who used to be walking now all of a sudden he's standing on the street corner with that group of kids. Ooh, that's the progression. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but he might get taken in. And then all of a sudden he's standing in the way of sinners. He's standing with sinners. That's association. First step was exposure. The second step is association. Now he's actually stopped and paused. Why? Because he was curious. Oh, he was intrigued. Oh, and there was an overexposure of sin. So he became somewhat numb to its harm and decided, you know what? I'm going to give a lending ear to this guy, to this wicked person. That's how they're characterized. An unbeliever. They are wicked sinners, scoffers. They hate God. But Satan has a strategy. So they're like picking off the... The, the weak, lame deer at the periphery with their family. First, it starts with walking. Walking turns into stopping. Now you're idle. You ever drive around and see a bunch of high schoolers on the corner who are idle? They're just standing. There's a group of them. And immediately, immediately you know it. You're thinking, guilty. Because they're just standing there. Standing idle in the way of sinners. The way, the way is a way of life. The worldview. Now they've stopped. They've heard. And now, you know what? Then they begin to justify and even defend this way of life. I heard you. I used to have some, my initial <gasps> shame is gone. My conscience has been seared just enough to become somewhat numb. And now I'm actually giving you an audience. Now I'm listening to you. Now I'm standing here giving you my time. You've gone from proselytizing and marketing your sin to now having a listening potential customer. That's what's going on here. This is the progression, the subtle progression of the influence of sin. Well, then they finally win the, the person over. They went from walking and listening to the... That's where it starts, by the way, with the walk. It's the thinking. That's what is attacked first. That's what Satan did in the very beginning. You attack someone's thinking. You attack their belief system. That's where it all begins. Because you do what you believe, you act what you believe, you are what you believe. 
That's why the word counsel is so important and strategic. You listen to the counsel. You listen to the advice. You listen to the world, the suggestions. And then it, it won you over. It, it blinded you. It created gray area that wasn't supposed to be gray. It made things ambiguous and unclear. It made you hesitate, made you pause, made you second guess what you've always taught or were taught and believed. Now you're standing. Now you're in their way. Now you're welcoming their way of life. Now you're associated with them. And then it progresses even more if you make that decision and you go the next level. And that is, nor does the righteous man sit in the seat of scoffers. The seat of, you know what the seat is? That is a settled conviction. You own it now. When you sit in that seat, you have arrived. This is like Michael Corleone, who in the beginning loved the United States and hated the mafia. And by the end of the movie, he is sitting in the seat as the godfather. It's literally what this is. So that's why I said this is so important for parenting, because you as a parent can monitor, gauge, watch on, look on, assess, pray for. Not isolate your children, but insulate your children. Be proactive, be involved, ask questions. Who are you associating with? I want to meet your friends. Can I have them over? What are their names? What's their phone number? What are their parents like? What do their parents believe? Where do they go to church? What do they do with their free time? Where are they involved in school? What school school do they go to? What are their hobbies? What are their habits? Do they know Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Are they wicked? Are they sinners? Are they mockers? Do they hate God? Are they influencing you? Are you influencing them? Are you walking with them? Are you standing with them? Are you sitting with them? Or have you decided not to associate with them? This is an important message for teenagers at high school. It doesn't matter what high school you go to. Collegiates at college and that profess to be Christians. We are all susceptible. We are all vulnerable to these kind of influences. And you can just take it out into the world to every single one of us here that's even a Christian. Who did you listen to this week to get your news about what's going on in the world? What is your outlet? Who's your go-to? What what app do you read? Pretty much all the news outlets, it's from a secular point of view. Newsflash. Secular, anti-Bible, anti-Christian worldview, anti-Bible presuppositions. Don't be naive. Who is giving you advice? Who's giving you counsel? Who's giving you suggestions about every area of life? And as a Christian, what you got to think to vet this out. I mean, I can't listen to the counsel of the wicked. That's correct. It's what it says. It's dangerous. So I can't listen to the advice of some guy who's not saved, who's a mechanic because he's going to do something spiritual to my car. No, that's not what it's talking about. My mechanic is not a Christian. My mechanic is a great mechanic. Had him for a long time. What's it talking about? Well, then when do you not listen to their counsel? Well, it's real simple. Any area in life that the Bible specifically, literally addresses and gives advice on, then in that area, you don't seek the counsel of the wicked. The Bible doesn't talk about advice on cars and how to fix it so you go to a mechanic. The Bible doesn't talk about how to do brain surgery. Does the Bible talk about family life? Yes. Roles of husbands and wives? Yes. 
children and how they should react and be, uh, act towards their parents? Yes. How we should respond towards authority? Yes. How to be a citizen in this society? Yes. Our attitude towards government? Absolutely. What we should do with our money and should we pay our taxes? Yes. Comprehensively, exhaustively. How we should behave towards one another in a marriage? Yes. How we should serve in the local church? Yes. All of our morality and ethics? Yes. All of our spirituality? Yes. Anything that the Bible is specific on, we don't seek counsel from the wicked in those areas. And where the Bible doesn't address it, there's common grace from God where he has made everybody in his image and God has gifted naturally many unbelievers to help us out in so many different areas. So hopefully that helps you think that through and discern that. So that's just one little nugget, one little thought that's been on my heart uh, recently to, as I'm trying to think, okay, I need to examine myself. Am I, am I walking like a righteous man? Am I avoiding these things? Because that's what you need to do. You need to avoid certain things. Draw the line. There are parameters. There's a line of no compromise that I can't cross, that I won't cross. It's what you don't do. And then the next verse talks about what you do do. Then you meditate on the word of God day and night. In other words, you live in light of biblical revelation in every area of life, and it just consumes you, and you can't get enough of the word, and you're always in the Bible, and you're looking to the Bible for the answers of life where it has the information to offer. That's how we need to live as Christians. So my question to you and to me today is, are, we, are you one of the righteous or are you one of the wicked? If you are one of the righteous this morning, you are invited to participate in communion right now. I'm going to ask our uh, ushers to go ahead and bring the elements forward as we prepare our hearts now for communion. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11. Again, if you're not a Christian today, you don't need to, please don't take communion. Just let it pass by you. If you're a Christian convicted by sin and just feeling guilty today, I've had Christians say, well, I, I can't take communion today. Why not? Because, uh, because I'm a sinner. Yeah, so am I. Hello. That's what communion is for. Communion is to remind you of what a horrible, pathetic sinner you are and how awesome God's saving grace is. And Jesus paid it all. That's why communion is a celebration. So if you're willing to confess your sin, God, in your own heart, God, forgive me for my sin. Then you're ready to take communion and celebrate in light of the blood of Christ. So go ahead, ushers, you can pass out uh, the cups as it's coming around. And there maybe those of you might, who might be new, there's two cups. That's kind of foreign to some people. Wait, why do you have two cups? Because one has the bread and one has the drink in it together. And just hold on to it for a second and we will we'll take together at the same time while they're passing that out. And you're meditating in your own heart. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from Jesus himself regarding the Lord's table. Um, for I received, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord, that's Jesus, this was direct revelation. From heaven, Jesus spoke to the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you when I was your pastor, when I planted your church. It's a reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, there's that word, Eucharisto, give thanks. That's what 
one of the things we do at communion is to give thanks to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for rising again from the dead, proving you are Lord. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of me, you you admit you're a sinner, you need God's grace. It's for you. <coughs> then he said, do this in remembrance of me. So communion is also a remembrance. That's why we call it a memorial. We are remembering what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus is not in the bread. That's a big theological controversy. Does Jesus turn in? Does the bread turn into Jesus during this time? Transubstantiation? No. Is Jesus actually kind of in the bread? Traditional Calvinism? No. Is Jesus mystically present somehow around the bread? Traditional Lutherism? No. Guess where Jesus is? In you. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, if you're a Christian, that's, that's even better. Jesus is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians chapter 1. That's what we're celebrating through the Holy Spirit. And so he goes on. So it's a memorial remembering what Jesus did on your behalf as a sinner. We remember that. We celebrate that. Verse 25. In the same way, let's do the same thing. He took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's an Old Testament promise that we get to partake in uh, the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and the drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a proclamation. Jesus is coming again. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. That's what we're doing. His death, but also that he's coming again. He's the living Lord. Therefore, who eats, whoever eats and drinks uh, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning if you're not a Christian, refrain. If you're a Christian holding on to sin, unwilling to repent, refrain shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a scary thing. But rather, let every Christian examine themselves. And so then, let him eat of the bread. There it is. And drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Go ahead. We're going to just uh, take a minute. I want you to meditate in your own heart. Talk to Jesus. Celebrate with him. Give him thanks. Thank him for his death, for your sins that are forgiven in Christ. And we're going to just meditate while the music plays for a second. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.